I want you to repeat these words after me at the start of the sermon, okay? You, you pray these words after me. Do you understand? You'll repeat these words after me? Okay. So close your eyes, focus, and I want you to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, I know that Peter did not write the Bible. I know that Peter does not know exactly how to apply it to my life. But you do. So, Lord God, help us to preach your word. In the name of Jesus. And through the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay, now we're safe. Matthew uh, chapter 4, Jesus comes preaching, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew 5, you know, he climbs this little mountain and he begins to expound uh, the law kind of like Moses. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, I came not to um, abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. Now 5, 21, he begins to expound upon the law saying this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable, and, and that means subject to or guilty in judgment. The law against murder is the sixth of the Ten uh, Commandments. However, you could argue that it's the first commandment or first law in all the, all the Bible. Actually, the very first commandment in the Bible comes before the fall. And do you remember what that was? Be fruitful and multiply. Now, I don't know if you understand how this, this works, but I'm thinking that that command probably didn't come across as a law. When your mom says, have fun this weekend, you, you don't turn around and scream, you're not the boss of me, stop telling me what to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Amen, first commandment in the Bible. That happens, that happens when you give your life to another in a vulnerable, intimate, free communion of mutual sur surrender. So, so the first command before the fall is give your life to another. The first command after the fall was basically don't take life from another. This is how it reads in Genesis 9. Noah, you shall not eat flesh with its life that is, its blood. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from Ha'adam, the man. From his fellow man, Ish, his, fellow, uh, his brother, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of Ha'adam, the man. Whoever sheds the blood of Ha'adam, the man, by man, Adam, shall his blood be shed. For God made Ha'adam in his own image. Now that's kind of weird. But, but it kind of tells us a lot. Number one, the penalty for taking the Adam's life is losing your own life. Number two, strangely, God, all require, God already requires, you need to know this, he already requires a reckoning for your life, as if you've already taken the life of Ha'adam and, and called it your own, but it's actually his. And number three, the life is in the blood. That's why some argue that human life begins with the circulation of blood, uh, and that happens in a fetus something like 17 days after uh, conception. Solomon writes, we do not know how the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. We don't know, but if, if spirit means breath, perhaps it's 17 days after conception or earlier. We, we don't know, but we do know that it does come to the bones in the womb of a woman with, with child. And so, of course, people get worked up over abortion. The numbers have been going down in our society, but still, there are about 800,000 reported a, a year. I used to be a one-issue voter, not so much because I was worried about babies getting murdered. I think Jesus has shown me that he has all the babies. 
not because of the babies, but because I was worried about what the act did to young women and young men and the psyche of our nation. I, I used to be a one-issue voter until I studied my Bible some more, particularly the history of the Middle East and how many, learned how many people had died since 9-11. Listen closely. I do not know the correct political answer to this uh, situation, but when you take a hard look at how many Iraqi and Afghan citizens have been killed because of our response to Osama bin Laden on 9-11, it should just rip your heart apart. Maybe even fill you with dread when you realize that God is, is just. My government allows women to decide to kill their own unborn babies, and if some get their way, it may actually use my tax dollars to do so. But my government has already used my tax dollars to kill hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Some might argue that an unborn baby is not a person, but there's definitely life in the blood of the people we bomb in the deserts of the Middle East. See, unless God authorizes it, I think all of that may be murder. That's what we're talking about this morning. Murder. So at the count of three, not before, but at the count of three, I want you to stand up if you've been party to an abortion, paid for one, had one, or caused one. Or if you voted for a president who took us into an unjust war, like maybe George Bush, or if you've ever been angry at any time in your life, okay? <laughs> I mean, maybe you're angry at me right now for the way I started this sermon and the issues that I brought up on a Sunday morning. So, so this is what I want you to do. Uh, if you've murdered someone, or if you've ever been angry, I want you to stand up at the count of three. One, two, three. Okay, now, Emma, you're allowed to stay seated because I know standing is hard. But, but look around, just look around. I want you to stay standing, okay? And just look around. And now listen to our text. Stay standing, listen to our text, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, liable here doesn't mean that you might not murder. It means you did murder, and now you're going to have to face judgment. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, some may say, well, who's my brother? Who's my sister? Well, just five verses earlier, Jesus referred to all of our fathers as the very same father. That means that all these, all these people, all these people are your, everyone's your brother. He said, pray our father. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother, says raka to his brother, will be liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell, the Gehenna of fire. Whew. Okay? Now you can sit down. I just wanted you to see that we're kind of like all in this together, right? All in this together. And it seems that Jesus just equated, I, I think he did, anger with murder. He, he equated an inner disposition of the heart with the most heinous of, of deeds. Jesus equated anger with murder, and, and you know, when I'm angry, something in me wants to take a life. For I perceive that someone is taking my life. And by life, I mean nephesh. That's the word that God uses in Genesis chapter 9. Nephesh gets translated as psyche in Greek and then as soul in English. God, God breathes death, breath, not death, breath, breathes breath into dust and, and Adam becomes a nephesh, a living, a living soul. It, it refers to more than biological life, but it refers to your like all of your relationships and your um, accomplishments and your mental construct, your mental construct of reality, your psyche. It refers to your psyche. 
to get angry when I think that someone is assaulting my psyche. Someone says, you're wrong, and I immediately want to argue, no, I'm right, and you're wrong. Get angry. I may not want to stop them from breathing at first, but, but I do want to take from their psyche and give to my psyche. In other words, I want to humble them and exalt me. Now, I, I should point out there are two Greek words that both get translated anger, thumos and orge. They often appear synonymous, but thumos usually refers to like passionate outbursts of anger, and orge usually refers to something more like a disposition of anger. Jesus uses a verbal form of orge, and he uses it as a present passive participle. So literally translate this is what Jesus says. Everyone who is being angry or being angered with his brother is, is liable. Ephesians 4.26, Paul writes this. Be angry or gizo. It's even in the imperative tense. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your, your anger. Now, I, I don't think he means it's so much okay to be angry, but something more like, I know that you're angry, and you will get angry, but do not let the sun go down on your anger. I think that because in just, what, five more verses, he writes this, literally, let all all thumos, all thumos and orge be put away from you. And Jesus teaches that, that just being angry with your brother subjects you to judgment. And he, and he points out what I, he then points out what I know to be true is that when I'm diminishing a person in my mind, I begin to diminish them with my words. So Jesus then says, whoever says raka, it means stupid, would be pretty direct translation. Whoever says raka, stupid to his brother, is liable to the council. Now the council could pe put people in, in, in prison. And you know, anger already is kind of like a, a prison. When you're angry, you put yourself in prison and the people around you in prison. And then Jesus says, whoever says, you fool, more, more from moros, it's where we get our words moral and moron, so a more is a moral moron. Call someone more, says Jesus, and you'll be liable to the Gehenna of fire. The Old Testament tells us that Gehenna is set ablaze by the breath of God, and we know that God is love. Love is strong as death writes Solomon in the Song of Solomon. Love is strong as death. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. When we harbor contempt and speak words of contempt, the love of God that is God will burn us. That's the most fearsome of flames. We're liable to the Gehenna of fire. But now that raises... A fascinating question. It actually raises a whole bunch of questions, but, but this, is, this is a good one. Is Jesus liable to the Gehenna of fire? Matthew 23, 17, same book. I'm thinking Matthew has got to be aware of this. He records that Jesus says to the Pharisees, you blind fools, more. So is Jesus liable to the Gehenna of fire? Did Jesus get angry? Mark 3, 5, we read that Jesus looked around at the Jews with orge, with anger. All four Gospels, you know, record him making a whip and chasing the merchants out of the temple. Sounds angry, anyway. And yet, Colossians, Paul tells us this. He writes this, to put away all Colossians and Ephesians, to put away all thumos and orge, because on account of these things, the orge of God, the wrath of God is coming. Yeah. What's that? I mean, is God like a hypocrite about this? In a few verses, Jesus is going to tell us to be perfect like our heavenly Father, like God is perfect, but God sure seems to get angry. It's popular now among preachers to say, well, God's not angry. Well, is God angry? Does God get angry? Doesn't God shed blood and take life? Actually, I think he takes all life. 
like 100%. And doesn't he let the sun go down on his anger? Does he let the sun go down on his anger? You know, if there is a place of God's endless wrath, orge, or thumas, then God lets the sun forever go down on his anger. And God himself must be imprisoned in his own rage and never at rest. Why? Because love himself has failed and continues to fail. And, and how could Mr. Omnipotent and Mr. Omniscient ever have let that happen? I mean, just the thought of that kind of gets me angry. It's all confusing and it all makes me angry. I get angry at people. I get angry at myself. But when I'm really honest, I'm angry at somebody else. Maybe you're angry that you had an unwanted pregnancy. But aren't you a little angry that God ever let it happen in the first place? That he ever made those hormones in the body and set you up? Uh, that, that, that that happened to you? I mean, maybe you're angry at Trump or Obama or the policies in the Middle East. But if you trace that back, you'll find yourself standing in a garden in, in front of a tree. See, I think we're all angry. Because we're all dying. Because someone is taking our life. And we know who it is. He subjected creation to futility and consigned us all to disobedience. He left us in a garden with an evil talking snake and, and a terrifying tree. I think we were all secretly or not so secretly angry with God. When I was in Romania years ago, as a young man, I learned about the medieval ruler of Wallachia named Vlad Tepes. He fought against the incursion of the Muslim Turks. A few years ago on TV, I saw a movie loosely based on his life. These clips are a little bit scary, so you can close your eyes if you want to, but in this scene, he's just returned from the Crusades to find that his wife mistakenly thought he was dead, and so she committed suicide, and he gets angry at God. So I guess my point is this, don't do that. <laughs> but I'm afraid that we may have already done that. And we're already angry, more than a bit angry with God. Did you see the tree? Did you see the river of blood coming from the tree? I cut this scene, because I know that's a little bit much, but he puts the blood in a cup and screams, the blood is the life, and he takes the blood as his own possession. He takes the life like we all took the life of Jesus on the tree in the garden. He, he takes the blood in the wrong way. Anoxios in Greek from 
1 Corinthians chapter 11. He takes it in arrogance and anger as if he was worthy of the blood, and that makes him unworthy of the blood. He takes it in arrogance and anger. He takes the blood in the wrong way, and he drinks judgment on himself. His anger becomes a prison, and the light then burns him like fire. That's Bram Stoker's story of Vlad Tepes and how he became Count Dracula. He's mad as hell and he traps himself in his own hell. Last time I said I find it rather fascinating that our most terrifying monsters are descriptions of what we have already made ourselves to be, right? Zombies. The walking dead that long to eat the flesh of the living. Vampires, the walking dead that long to suck the life from everyone that they, they meet. It's a bit jarring when you see it, but let's be honest. We do bite and devour each other, just like Paul says in the book of Galatians. We compete at life. We pretend to be alive, but our hearts are rather dead. We're all a bit angry, though it often manifests depression and, 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 and fear and addiction and a whole host of other things. We're all a bit angry because it seems that someone is trying to take our life, our dignity, our psyche, and so we try to take the psyche, dignity, and life of others. We all murder in our hearts, and you see, that's the very worst place to, to do so. All of us. A young pastor was given a sermon in which he asked this rhetorical question. Who here has lived his wife, life in such a manner that he now has no enemies? Immediately, a hand shot up in the back of the sanctuary. It was this, this, old, this old guy. And so he stopped, rather flummoxed, and, and asked, how have you, sir, lived, that's impressive, how have you lived in such a way that you now have no enemies? This old guy stood up and he said, I outlived all them sons of bitches. <laughs> but you see, he probably wasn't describing heaven, was he? He was describing hell. Now, at this point, we all assume that we know where Jesus is going with this whole thing. You're all angry. Now stop it and be nice. When you're in an argument and someone says, you're angry, does that help you to be less angry? <laughs> Years ago, I was sitting in a movie theater in California with Susan and these teenagers behind us that just kept, they just kept talking, you know, and I kept saying to myself, Peter, don't, don't be angry. Don't be angry at those stupid morons. Don't be angry. But the more I told myself not to be angry, the angrier I got until finally I just, preparing curses in my mind, I, I spun around to begin cursing them. All of a sudden I hear one of them say, Peter! <laughs> and they were all kids from my youth group. All kids that I dearly loved, and, and I remember all at once thinking to myself, those guys, <laughs> they're such jokers. <laughs> Love those guys. In other words, I repented. Suddenly I, I had a new mind, a new way of thinking, and a new judgment which manifests in new actions. Uh, next verse, we're all angry, angry as hell. Verse 23, uh, Jesus says, So, so, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, I think we all assume, and pretty much every commentary I read assumed, but they noted this, they all assumed that what Jesus really meant to say, but he didn't know quite how to say, I guess, what he meant to say is that if you're offering your gift at the altar and you have something against a brother, I mean, and if you are angry with a brother, go and be reconciled to that brother. Now, that may be fine and good, but technically, I don't even know that you have to go to them. You just have to forgive them in, in your heart. But... And, and that's, a, that's a wonderful thought, but that's not, that's not what Jesus says. He says, if a brother has something against you. You see, that means if a brother is angry at you. And he doesn't say anything about them being justified or not justified in their anger. 
In fact, he's already made the point, basically, that all human anger is unjustified. He's talking about a brother that's angry with you, and Jesus will soon have an entire world of brothers angry with him. In fact, so angry they take him to a tree in the garden and they, they nail him to the tree and take his life. So, if a brother is angry with you, leave your gift at the altar in the temple and go to him. Next verse. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, to the judgment seat, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will certainly not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, we all assume, once again, that Jesus is saying, when you're angry at an accuser, stop it. But Jesus doesn't say anything about you being angry. It's the, an accuser is the one that's angry. And anger makes you accuse. You know, Satan is called the accuser. Very same word in 1 Peter. Paul writes, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no space to the devil. He's saying that our anger which is unjustified because it's somehow based on a lie, literally gives space to the accuser. Well, in this verse, Jesus still isn't talking about your anger. He's talking about those that are angry with you and so accuse you. And he doesn't say anything about their anger being justified or their accusations being true. So why would you go to them? Why would you go to a brother who is unjustly angry with you and you're not angry with them? Why would you go to a person that's been seduced by the evil one and now wants to take your life from you? They want to break your body and shed your blood. Why would you want to go to them? Well, not to save yourself, but to save them. Even if it meant losing yourself, you'd be sacrificing yourself to find them. You see, this is the thing I think that we just don't get. We modern American Christians just don't get about Jesus. He actually came to seek and to save the lost. Why? Because he wants to. He actually loves sinners. He actually has sympathy for angry people. <laughs> because they have trapped themselves in a lonely prison and they are burned by the presence of love. He came to save them. And he wants you to help him because you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You're his body, willing to be broken and to bleed for humanity, the zombies, the vampires, the walking dead. Jesus calls us to have sympathy on those who are angry with us. And then he says something utterly insane, and this is where you need to remember that Peter Hyatt did not write the Bible, but this is what he says. He says, settle on your way to court, lest you be thrown in prison, because you won't get out until you pay the last penny. Last penny of what? Well, whatever they're suing you for, right? That would mean Give whatever they ask. And we think, oh, well, obviously, he cannot, he cannot mean that. He, he, he can't mean that. And yet, did you know that just a few paragraphs on, he's going to say exactly that. Verse 40, he says, if someone sues, now this is a legal term, if someone sues for your tunic, now tunics are cheap, you can go get one at Walmart, but they weren't cheap, tunics, tunics were expensive in that day. 
So let me translate for us. He says, if someone sues, if someone sues you for your new BMW, saying that the title really doesn't belong to you, it belongs to them, and they take you to court. If someone sues you for your new BMW, well then, before you get to court, give them the BMW and your dirt bike, because you're going to give it to them anyway. In fact, you're in prison and burned by the presence of love until you do. And you must do this without any anger. That's the point, no anger. You see, to us, that just seems utterly impossible. Get yourself crucified because you want to. That's the point. Well, how do we do that? Well, maybe we don't. And yet we do. But if we did, it would certainly require a new mind and a new heart. Well, anyway, let's take a second look at those questions we asked at first, okay? Number one, does God let the sun go down on his anger? Well, God made the sun, and so technically, of course, it wouldn't go down, but I think it means something like don't get to the end of the day without resolving your anger issues. As I've preached a thousand times, according to Scripture, we're still being made in the image of God on the sixth day of creation, a, a day that doesn't come to an end until we come to Jesus on the tree in the garden and we hear him cry, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and it is finished and we watch him deliver up his spirit, his spirit that fills the temple that is us. And then we begin to experience this thing called eternal life, the life of God's age, the seventh day, God's Sabbath rest. With this, the wrath of God is ended. It shows up a bunch of places in Scripture. The wrath of God comes to an end. Jesus is the end. Jesus is not only subject to Gehenna, he is Gehenna. Well, what I mean by that is he is the judgment of God. Number two, was God angry or is God angry? Well, Scripture said he was angry or, or is angry on the sixth day of creation. Yet God clearly says, he says to us, vengeance belongs to me, not to you. Vengeance. We don't understand God's vengeance. The word ekdikasis means bring out righteousness. It flows out of Jesus like a, like a river. Jesus Christ and him crucified is God's vengeance. The height of human anger is taking the life of another. The height of God's anger is giving his life to another. It's a cup of wrath. It's a bowl of blood. It's lamb's blood, the blood of the lamb. God bleeds mercy, and the mercy is judgment. The mercy is fire. The mercy causes you to, like, lose your psyche and find it. Number three, so did Jesus get angry? I, I don't know if he got angry at his brothers, which are us, but he certainly got angry for his brothers, which is all of us. In Mark 3, he got angry that the Jews wouldn't give life on the Sabbath. They viewed healing as a work done in response to a law, and Jesus viewed healing as the presence of God's rest on the seventh day. He gets angry that his brothers don't want to give life, and so they cannot receive life, his life. Number four, does Jesus take your life? No, he is your life, he's the life. Number five, does God take his life from you? Yes, so that he can give it back to you. So he can give it back to you continuously and freely and forever like a river, it's the river of life. God is angry at the lies that damn the river of life, his life. In all four gospels, Jesus gets angry that people would believe that grace can be bought and sold by merchants in his temple. And I hope you're beginning to see that we are God's temple, and in each temple is a throne. And you see, the throne is also a judgment seat. So, 
leave your gift at, at the altar of the stone temple and go to your brother, for your brother is the temple. And the gift that God desires is you. And the judgment that he speaks from the throne inside of you is love. Love is the decision to lose your psyche and find it in him. Love is the decision to bleed for your brothers, his temple, his body. Love is the decision that binds everything together in joy. Love in human flesh is Jesus and his body. Number six. So did Jesus leave his gift at the altar to come reconcile with us his brothers who had something against him? Did he come to settle with his accusers and give them his every last penny? Yeah! That's what this whole thing is about. I mean, that's what creation is about, a setup to reveal that to you, Jesus left the glory of God in heaven to find you because he knew that you were angry with him. He knows you're angry about a million things, but ultimately you're angry about one thing. You're angry at him. Why? Because he is the judgment of God and God subjected creation to futility and consigned all men to disobedience. And you see, that produces just a, a boatload of anger. Now, God was not wrong in doing that. He is always right. But we do not yet understand his righteousness. His righteousness is Jesus. Another way of saying that is we do not yet fully know the good, but the good is revealing himself to us on a tree. God subjected creation to futility in hope. He consigned all people to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. I'm saying he came to find you because you have been mad as hell at him and he wants to turn your hell into his heaven. He wants to give you his heart and he is relentless love. He wants to give you his mind and he is the logic or the logos of of love. He came to be crucified by you. He came to give his last penny to you, his life to you, and everything for you. We think life is saving yourself, but Jesus thinks life, life is, is losing yourself and finding yourself in another. As he hung on the tree, the Pharisees said, save yourself. What they could not yet understand is that is exactly what he was doing. For we all are himself, his children, his brothers, his sisters, his temple, his body, his bride. They were angry. They were angry because he would not save them from the Romans, but Jesus was saving them from themselves for himself. It's not only something he did 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, it's something he's doing right here, right now. It's something that he's doing for you and that I think he wants to do through you all the time. I had a crazy, wild experience just this last week that reminded of this, but it's a little too fresh to talk about this morning, so I'll tell you about something that happened years ago. One night, Susan and I were praying for a friend that had been just horribly, horribly abused and was understandably angry, although it took years for her to, to get to the anger. In prayer, Jesus revealed that the one with whom she was really angry was him. Mad that he ever let any of this crap happen to her in the first place. She was mad as hell at him. And so Jesus asked me to stand in for him. He asked that of us in, in prayer. <laughs> for me to stand in for him as if I was his body. He, he had her scream at him in me as, as I held her. And he told her to beat on me. 
And so she did. I remember holding her really tight so she couldn't get much momentum behind her punches. She, she, she beat on me and beat on me, screaming until she dissolved in my arms in a river of tears. Honestly, I think it was one of the greatest privileges of my life because through me, he, he showed her that he gladly suffered for her, that he had always suffered for her, and that he was always suffering in her because she is his body, his bride. Do you understand that that is exactly what you do whenever you forgive? For ultimately, people are not mad at you. They're mad at the one who made you, Jesus. That is what you do when you forgive, and that is dumping eternal fire on the head of the ancient dragon, and that is how Jesus sets the captives free. That's his weapon. And you see, that is not something that you can just simply decide to do in response to some sort of law. That is only something that God can do through you, and he, he does it in you and then through you when you return to the tree in the garden and see that what was taken has always been given his life. At the cross, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is transformed into the tree of life, and I suspect that it always was, because what changes? Not the tree, but you. At the foot of the tree, you change. It changes you. At the cross, we learn that what we took and killed, the good and the life, we learn that what we took has always been given. It's love. Love is the judgment of God, and love is giving your life to another. It seems that we, the church, I think, have largely forgotten this, but, but the world longs for this. They even write it into our monster movies. There, in the presence of God, I understood at last how my love could release us all from the powers of darkness. Our love is stronger than death. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. In the end, Dracula gets saved by love. And did you see the tree? Did you discern the power of the blood? I, like I said, I edited out of the first clip for those that are of tender heart, but in the first clip, Dracula drinks the cup, and when he does, he stands condemned. But that's just the beginning. You see, in some incredible way, it's also the end because he returns to the tree and he sees that the life he took has always been given. It's forgiven. The life of God is forgiven all of us. It's relentless, unquenchable love. It's love that condemns our anger and love that sets us free. It's grace that taught my heart to, to fear and grace my fears relieve. The, the spirit of the bride quotes the song of Solomon 8.4. Love is strong as death. It's flashes of flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. The blood in the cup becomes the wine of the kingdom. Dracula dies the second death, the death of death, and he begins to live. E eternal life is not something that you can take and possess, something you earn, something that you are worthy of. It's not something you can take and possess. Eternal life is someone who gives himself to you. Eternal life is one body animated by love. It's Jesus, and 
and his, his bride. And, and so the night before we all took his life on the tree in the garden, he gave his life at dinner in the upper room. He took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he took the cup, saying, This is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. Like I said last time, this is a vampire trap. <laughs> You've been sucking the life out of people, angry at people. It's a vampire trap, it's a zombie trap. You've been competing with, with others around you that feel like they have more life than you? It's a zombie trap. This turns zombies into sons and daughters. It turns vampires into husbands and, and brides. Evil is taking the life of Christ on a tree in the garden, and the good is life giving his life on the tree in the garden. The good is receiving his life at the tree in the garden because it's, it's grace. The good is love, and you will love because you've been loved, and that's life. So why is that they keep coming back here every weekend? <laughs> so I can give you a new list of laws, how to, a how-to instruction book, because I don't know. <laughs> I hope the reason you come back to this place every, every week is to see something that the world has forgotten. Because you see, when you see that Jesus suffers all that you suffer, when you see that Jesus suffers all your anger, when you see that everybody is his body, all your anger will be transformed into worship. Psalm 76, verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, O Lord. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Dark cup is wine. Light cup is juice. They're both the life and the knowledge of the good. Taste and see. The Lord is so good. So close your eyes, and maybe while I was preaching, you were thinking about your anger. Who are you angry at? Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's God, because he made everything, and he put you here, and he's sovereign. You just said, not our will, not my will, but yours be done. So take your anger. and just lay it at the foot of the tree. And if you can, discern the river that flows from the tree. Everything you have is a gift. Everything you've done is forgiven. He could not love you more than he does. And now you have all kinds of questions, like, should I have confronted this person? Should I have said this to my kids? Should I have stayed married? Should I have done this? Should I have done that? I don't know. But drink from this river of mercy and then do whatever the king sitting on the throne in your heart tells you to do.
There may be days that he asks you to make a whip, drive people from the temple. There may be days that he has you turn water into wine at a party. And there will be days when he asks you to climb up on the tree with him. But you see, whatever you do, it will be done in a new way, a living way, that brings life to this broken creation and increases your capacity for joy, eternal joy. In other words, love because you've been loved. Amen. And so what was I asking you to do this morning? To try harder to be nice? No. Repent. What I asked two weeks ago. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is a body, and you're dead until you are connected. And so you're already standing up. As you can stand up if you aren't, if you if you want to stand up. At, look, I mean, just look around at the people that were standing all around you. Look around and let me let me tell you something that this repentance means. There really is no such thing as your life or their life. It's all Christ's life, and you all are his body. And so, you see, it makes no sense. Now, go ahead and look at someone. Go ahead and find someone. Look at him. I'm looking at my wife. She's looking at Paul. It's okay. <laughs> but if that's true, it makes no sense for you to be angry at them. They're your body. However, it might make some sense to be angry at the lies that divide you from them. And you see, if that's what's making you, if that's the anger, if that's the anger, I think it may not actually be your anger. I think that may be the wrath of God. And there's something that you can do about it. You can forgive them. Because Jesus gives you that power. You're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You are the body and the blood of Jesus the Christ. So believe the gospel and live the gospel. If you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team would be down front and they would love to uh, pray with you.